0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll free number is online and is active 24 7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: It's time for another political rewind. I'm Bill Nigget As always, I appreciate your being with us for our show. It's a somber day for many, many people in uh, the state of Georgia today. Uh, Today is the day that uh, one of the great civil rights leaders of this country, C.T. Vivian, will uh, be put to rest, laid to rest. He uh, is going to be uh, celebrated in a funeral service, a private funeral service at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. Um, And uh, Gerald Durley, Uh, will uh, perform the ceremony. Gerald Durley made remarks yesterday when uh, uh, Vivian was lying in state at the Capitol. And one of the things he reminded people of that I thought was uh, really good that he did is that C.T. Vivian always approached life as as serious as he was about civil rights movement, as great an intellectual as he was throughout his lifetime. He had a tremendous sense of humor, which many of us who uh, interacted with him over the years got to see... Uh, in action. Um, so I want to start today by just talking about C.T. Vivian a little bit. We've spent a good deal of time talking about John Lewis, and we'll do that again, I'm sure. But as I introduce the panel, uh, I'm then going to ask everybody to uh, share with me some of their thoughts on his passing today. It's Thursday. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, is with us back from a nice little vacation playing golf with his son in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, where your heart still lies to this day in many ways. Hi, Kevin.
2: Good morning. Good to be back, Bill, as always.
1: Uh, How'd you do? Uh,
2: Let's just say okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know I'm glad you're back with us on uh, Thursday. Uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County and a historian with a particular interest in Georgia history, doing Double duty for us. Michael Thurman, you were here with us on Monday when we uh, talked extensively about the life of John Lewis. And I'm very grateful for you to be back today because we are going to talk about some politics that are of uh, concern to you, I know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on C.T., Vivian, and uh, other matters. So, Michael, thank you so much for giving us a little more time this week. How are you doing? I'm
3: doing great. And, of course, I'm honored to be uh, back and look forward to the conversation.
1: Sam Oldens is here as well. He, of course, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, before that longtime Cobb County Commission chair, and um, now a partner in the world's largest law firm, Dentons. Hi, Sam Oldens. You're still working out of, I think you're working out of the kitchen of your house. Uh, That's how Dentons is doing its business these days, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, uh, good morning. I I think for most of the
4: high-rise buildings in downtown Atlanta, they're they're still in no rush to have us back in their structures. So uh, for the foreseeable future, we will continue to work at home.
1: Yeah, um, me too. Uh, I think many of us are doing just that, including Patricia Murphy. Uh, We're glad you're here with us today, Patricia. Patricia is a syndicated columnist. You can read her in Roll Call. Uh, also often in USA Today. Patricia, I have to apologize. Before we went on the air, I was going to check to see if you have a new column posted, and I didn't get a chance to do that. Do you have something brand new for us that we can uh, either talk about later or put up on our social media?
0: Relax, Bill. I do not have anything new for you. Um, But I will have two columns next week. The roll call schedule fluctuates with the congressional schedule. So that's been up in the air, as have my filing deadlines. But... I'll have
1: two next week. Okay. I guess at the same time, we should point out that you're rather busy uh, at home, uh, given that you're sheltering in place with your two boys, who I'm sure are demanding a lot of your time.
0: I have um, found new wells of patience and uh, persistence. <laughs> and yes, we're we're busy. It. It's, it's wonderful. They're healthy. My family's healthy. We feel so grateful. So truly, nothing to complain about. You know, it's an old fashioned summer of not much, but the sunshine and time to pass. So we're lucky.
1: Oh, uh-huh. good for you. Um, right, let's let's talk uh, for a few minutes about CT Vivian. I, there are some Kevin Riley. I find there's some interesting touch points. Uh, early in the lives of C.T. Vivian and John Lewis that um, I think are worth mentioning. Um, One of them is that uh, John Lewis, of course, became inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. when, as a teenager, uh, he listened to uh, Dr. King uh, on the radio talking about the uh, bus bus boycott and, uh, and was so enamored of what he heard from Dr. King, he eventually wrote King a letter, and uh, uh, King was, in fact, uh, impressed with what he saw, and he invited Lewis to come and meet with him, and that began a lifelong relationship. C.T. Vivian was uh, in Nashville... Uh, he, he was, he's of course quite older. John Lewis was 80 when he died, uh, C.T. Vivian, 95, uh, when he died on the same day that Lewis did. And uh, C.T. Vivian went to a, a church service in Nashville and he heard Dr. King preach, and that changed his life entirely. So that's one really interesting touch point. Uh, the next is that, of course, um, John Lewis was one of a group of students in Nashville who. Uh, Held sit-ins at lunch counters, segregated lunch counters. C.T. Vivian was sort of overseeing that project. They, within a matter of weeks, were able to desegregate the lunch counters in Nashville. Uh, Both Vivian, as an older uh, worker, and John Lewis were on some of the freedom rides where they were beaten and uh, uh, treated with uh, horrific physical violence. Um, There's all sorts of touchstones uh, they They traveled in parallel ways, Kevin, as they fought for civil rights, yeah, and you know
2: both just absolutely remarkable men. I think that uh that one of the most inspiring things uh, about um you know these these tributes to their life is how many people have a story of meeting them, talking to them, getting a picture with them um and how they were touched by them, these iconic figures. The same thing happened to me. I happened to be seated next to C.T. Vivian at the luncheon that the Atlanta Hawks had when they unveiled their Dominique Wilkins statue a few years back. Just total coincidence. I happened to be seated at a table uh, with C.T. Vivian. And by then I knew his son, Al, who many of us know um, here uh, in town. And, you know, what a great conversation. I mean, what a person, um, and everything you've heard about him was true in that brief experience I had with him. He was unbelievably insightful, a powerful intellectual, great sense of humor, um, was gracious to every person who, as he was repeatedly interrupted during his lunch, treated everyone as if he had nothing to do, but talk to them at that moment. And, um, those are the kind of uh, people they were, and, and they had a stature and a history that we'll probably never really see people gain again in our country's history.
1: I, I want to give everybody on the panel a chance to uh, uh, make some comments. Uh, before we do that, though, um, in 2015, C.T. Vivian went to the uh, 50th anniversary uh, a commemoration of the, the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, incident. And uh, he talked to an interviewer, he talked to a lot of people, uh, but one of the interviewers he talked to was uh, from uh, Democracy Now. I wanted to play just about a minute or so of the conversation they had. So here's C.T. Vivian, 50th anniversary, uh, the start of Selma to Montgomery.
5: Nonviolent direct action is something we have brought to America, right? Nonviolent direct action has, uh, has no violence in it, right? It is not there to destroy. It's there to develop and build. And that's what we've been trying to do at the core of that, is, is an understanding of faithful life. All right.
0: Do you think full voting rights have been achieved at this point? No,
5: because America won't change that quickly. see, Or if they had, they would have done it in 1776. There is nothing we haven't done for this nation. We've died for it. huh? But uh, it's been overlooked what we've done for it. But we kept. Knowing the scriptures, we kept living by faith. We kept understanding that it's something deeper than politics that makes life worth living.
0: What gave you the courage 50 years ago to stand up at the courthouse to make that walk? You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting
5: without hurting the rights of our other citizens. Democracy is built on this. This is our why faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, our grandmothers, uh, okay. uh, Uh, and great-grandmothers taught us how to live, right? Even when they couldn't uh, uh, speak well uh, as long as what the society was concerned about, what they were telling us about is as old as as the universe itself.
1: Um, We heard just a little bit of his uh, in there. uh, The interviewer played a portion of uh, C.T. Vivian's uh, famous confrontation with Sheriff Jim Clark in which he stood up to him and lectured him on what freedom really was all about and Jim Clark uh, uh, punched him in the face, knocked him down, and C.T. Vivian was dragged off. Uh, Michael Thurman, uh, I heard a couple of important words in that conversation that he had. Uh, Faith and courage. Michael?
3: Absolutely. and I've spent some time thinking about uh, Reverend Vivian and of course Congressman Lewis and Uh, Joseph, Laura, and all the great men and women that I had a chance to meet was just an honor for me personally because these are men and women I knew growing up in black and white newsreels. And, you know, I, I, I emulated them. I worried for them. Sometimes we thought they were just crazy people putting their lives on the line at a point in time in American history where if you were murdered, then you were just dead. Little or no prosecution and almost no chance of conviction in a court of law in states like Mississippi and Alabama, Georgia, and so forth. But, you know, at first, Bill, I I, I was sad earlier in the week, but the sadness has been replaced. By a sense of joy that these men and women can go to their rest knowing that they had well-lived lives and that they made a difference. And I know uh, we look at, uh, Brokaw talks about the greatest generation the men who went to Europe and women and defeated Hitler and the Axis nations. But from Black America's perspective, the Vivians, the the Lawrys, the Lewises, the Kings, the Abernathys—they were Black America's greatest generation. That's who these men and women are and were. Our greatest generation for Black Americans, rivaled only by the men and women like Frederick Douglass, who led the recently freed slaves into the new reality, into the new birth of freedom rival only by those who literally moved from slavery to freedom. This represents, and we all of us have had an opportunity to know and to work with Black America's greatest generation.
0: So, Bill, um, what I've been struck by is if you um, know C.T. Vivian and study his work, to me the most incredible detail that I've always gone back to is that his first protest was in 1947 to desegregate a cafeteria in Peoria, Illinois. And it took almost 20 years for the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act to be passed after that. And then almost 70 years later, in that interview that you had with him, he said they still had not achieved full voting rights for African Americans. And to me, that just shows this unbelievable persistence and faith, and um, really that grounding in his um, theology and intellectualism that I think came out of that Nashville school um, of thought. And we today the question is, can the energy of these protests be sustained? Will people continue to focus on this? We know that black activists will but can the entire country m- maintain its focus on this issue and you look at this unbelievable decades of commitment to that work I think that's what's going to continue to take but with men like CT Vivian and John Lewis we see the example of how that happens
2: Sam so in
4: in 2014 the state bar of Georgia had a fantastic program to commemorate the 150 150th anniversary of the state bar, and they had a uh, session uh, exclusive to C.T. Vivian, Um, of course, talking about law, justice, equality. And uh, for those that were introduced to him for the very first time, uh, you could tell the whole room was spellbound. Uh, It made no difference, your political ideology. You had to be extremely impressed by his character his intellect his drive um, and, and similar to what Patricia just stated um, you, you know in many ways we've we've gone really far in those 70 years and in many ways we've gone very little because uh, there still is so much to do and and these heroes of the civil rights movement um, Deserve all the praise they can get due to all the difficulty and challenges they faced.
1: So, Kevin, uh, I want to. Here's another little excerpt. I'll read this. Uh, what Vivian told that interviewer that day. She, he, he said to her uh, this um, America talks about democracy, but they've kept us from voting for years. And even when they give us the vote on paper, Politically, they turn around and take away the important part of what we fought for, and what they said they were giving. All right, the truth is that we have to work together to save ourselves politically, save ourselves spiritually, and save ourselves physically. We're not going to be able to do it until we listen to the faith without the hate. So the the p- reason for reading that, though, Kevin, is I think there are you, you hear that as you hear uh, the concerns today about whether voter suppression or not is is, is or is not denying African-Americans access uh, uh, to the ballot broadly. And clearly, there are many people who believe that suppression exists today and, and is still a fight that African-Americans have to make.
2: Well, those that that's the power of C.T. Vivian's words, actions, and leadership. That, I mean, they hold up today. I mean— that those words uh, that he that he used many years ago, the actions that he took many years ago, the self-discipline and the powerful ideas behind what he wanted to accomplish are still useful and speak to us today and remind us that, yes, I mean, there has been a lot of uh, accomplishment, but there is much before us as well.
1: Sam, you, you were attorney general of the state of Georgia and uh, in that position certainly watched uh, concerns about uh, free access to voting unfold. Um, do you believe that that remains an issue that has been, is still not resolved, especially here in Georgia, but for that matter uh, nationally, especially as you hear Republicans talk about uh, trying to, Uh, about the fact that uh, absentee ballots will corrupt the process, will fix the process. Are are we still struggling with the issue of free and fair elections?
4: Yes, no question about it. Um, I I don't understand the argument about uh, mail-in. It's worked very well for years in several states and uh, should be further encouraged irrespective of pandemics. Um, you know, when I was AG, we would deal with issues where, for instance, a county would start limiting the number of days of advanced voting or would make it more difficult. You know, for instance, County A would decide that they were going to have uh, uh, voting on a Sunday where a lot of uh, folks would go from church to vote. And then uh, county leadership would decide that was a really bad idea and seek to stop it. I've never quite understood the uh, (laughs) statements of some individuals that think um, one group has an advantage over another group to show up to the Board of Elections or to a precinct. Uh, It seems to me if your candidates are of appropriate quality, people will vote for them and they're trying to play games like when you can do advanced voting and when you can't have no place in this country.
1: And of course, Michael, this is one of the reasons that there are many people who love John Lewis and for that matter, C.T. Vivian as well, who believe the greatest tribute that could be paid to them is to restore in Congress uh, some of the provisions that were stripped out of the Voting Rights Act, uh, particularly pre-clearance, which required any change in election, a change in a polling place, location, change in early voting, whatever, uh, be cleared by the Justice Department. When that was stripped, it gave states the right to do a lot more in terms of uh, acting independently, and many people feel by doing so to manipulate who got to vote and who didn't, Michael.
3: Absolutely, not just states, but counties and cities. And uh, other jurisdictions could take efforts such as closing and shutting down precincts. Uh, You mentioned limiting early voting that is primarily designed to suppress and mitigate the influence of uh, minority voters and setting up voting schemes that dilute uh, the power of minority voting. And so, yes, it's still ongoing. And one of the things uh, that we talked about is that the struggle continues. Uh, C.T. Vivian and Lewis and others made a tremendous amount of progress and they'd be able to see it. But one thing they always said to me and said it publicly as well is that they understood that the struggle was not over, that racism still persisted and existed uh, in this nation. And the best... Uh, uh, testament, the best way to preserve and celebrate their legacy is for all of us, uh, white, black, whatever color you are, to continue that fight uh, that they gave their lives to, to bring fairness and equity uh, to our nation.
1: Um, Patricia, let's bring this conversation up to date and bring it into the headlines of, of this week. So by that, I mean a couple of things. Number one. Uh, The White House has said that the military spending bill that is now making its way through Congress would be dead on arrival if it continued to include a provision that was put into that bill by Democrats in the House to uh, uh, insist on renaming military bases for uh, Confederate uh, 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 leaders. Uh, The White House has said they'll reject that measure, even if it means uh, uh, turning down a spending, a military uh, spending bill. And in a vote in the House on that bill yesterday, uh, it, it, the bill passed with that provision in it to rename the, the bases. Every Republican in a, uh, the Georgia delegation voted against the bill, saying it was because they didn't like that provision. Every Democrat voted for it. And then as an ancillary uh, uh, incident, uh, there was also a vote yesterday in the House on removing the statues of Confederates from the Capitol. And once again, it passed, and it passed with bipartisan support. But once again, all the Georgia Republicans voted against it. The Democrats voted for it. What do we make of all that, Patricia?
0: Well, I think that um, as far as the defense authorization bill goes, that is a huge huge, huge uh, defense authorization bill. It sets every policy in the military for the next year. It has a significant pay raise for troops. It um, it will maintain or increase the number of troops in Europe, potentially over the wishes of President Trump. Um, It has enormous amounts of policy in there. And one of the policies is this question of should Army bases be renamed um, if they are named after Confederate uh, generals. And it's a step that the the Marine Corps has already taken. I think it's a step that is seen um, as a sign of respect from members, uh, the minority members of the military. Um, It passed by a veto-proof majority in the House. And it's come out um, also of the Senate Armed Services Committee, which is led by Jim Inhofe, who is no squish. So I think this is going to um, probably pass easily, um, but the president's focus on the issue, I think indicates um, that his priority in this bill despite the fact that it has so much in there that he asked for and including the pay raise, um, and would want. Um, and so to make a message out of this larger spending bill I think um, gives an indication of what we can expect from uh, the White House uh, through the election.
2: Uh, you know, Bill, uh, this this issue of whether it's statues or military bases or all of the Confederate names from streets to certain schools at universities um, has really – we we seem unable as a society to resolve it. You know, there was this movement to contextualize monuments. That did not work. People wonder if we can really remove them all we have a historian sitting here with us and, and Mr. Thurman. And I, I, what I always wish is that people could step back, calm down and say, all right, why do these military bases have this name? Why is Fort Gordon named Fort Gordon? If we could just find a way to have that kind of discussion, I think we would have better resolutions to these, to the statues, to everything else, because, um, they have become, those names have become something other than what they really are. In other words, when those things were named, they were named for reasons that are clear. And I think Michael can jump in here and 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 talk about that because he and I have talked about it. I know he's talked about it before in this show. So um, here's your opening,
1: uh, Mr. Herman. <laughs> Thank you, I, I want to jump time. in real I quickly though I want to let me, uh, me jump in real quickly um uh, because Mike, we want to get you and then I want to get Sam olins in but but Mike, I do want to ask you to also comment on what a comment that Kevin made as you talk about the rest of it. Uh, I'm not sure contextualization has not worked. I'm not I think contextualization continues to be something that many people believe has value in in dealing with these things. but go ahead and talk about. Uh, uh, any of that that you want to, and then Sam Owens.
3: No, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, you know, I'm reading a book, at least I've completed, Ghosts of the Confederacy. And it's a book been written by a gentleman named, uh, last name Foster. And part of this is understanding why it was so necessary to name these military bases after Confederate leaders, why it was so necessary for Southerners or the descendants of those men beyond the white supremacist angle, but that was a deep emotional and psychological need. Because when you really think about it, to name a United States military base after a general that waged war against the United States of America, it's stunning when you really, really just consider this. Uh, can you, there's no way in my mind that I could conceive that the United States of America would have a military base named after a German general. It's just inconceivable. But part of this was to restore Southern pride following the the, the devastation and the defeat, the unconditional surrender, when Southerners decided to rebel and wage war against the United States of America. And that's a stunning kind of understanding once you get there. And after that total defeat that resulted in unconditional surrender, then those Confederates and Southerners and their descendants had to come to, to, to grips with the reality that this rebellion that was fought not, as some say, over slavery, but actually it was fought over the expansion of slavery. I'm going to jump
1: in uh, because I'm sorry to interrupt you, but here's why I wanted to jump in. Sam, I want to bring you into this, and then I've got to get to a break. Sam, we have had on any number of occasions this conversation about Confederate uh, uh, statues, monuments, whatever, and whether they should be there or not. And I am always glad to hear the observations of our panel. In the context of what this conversation is, though, I think it's important to ask right now, Given the concern about racism in the United States and whether there is going to be a legitimate effort to undo the wrongs, th- the question on this uh, show is really, does voting uh, against removing Confederate uh, names from uh, military bases, does voting against removing Confederate officers from statutory, Statuary Hall and the Capitol, are those... Should do people have a right to take those as an anti-black sentiment or not? I mean, and that's where we're at right now, I think, Sam. And that's certainly the way this is being interpreted by a great many people. Your thoughts? Well, I think if the Republican Party
4: thinks this is a winning issue in November, uh, they're absolutely tone deaf, and it will lead to the loss of the Senate as well as the presidency. I do tend to think that as it relates to these namings, and of course, I do not support erasing history as compared to remembering history, I do think it's appropriate for the federal government to make the decision on basis. I do think it's appropriate for the state government to make decisions on state property. I similarly believe it is appropriate for cities and counties to have those decisions rather than a state law limit local governments. But I don't support the destruction. I don't support um, uh, having them not seen by the public. I think that's what museums are for and other educational uh, institutions. But I think at this point for the Republican Party to think that supporting the names of Confederate soldiers is um, helping them in November, it may help the base. But the base isn't enough to win an election, and it's tone deaf if you, in fact, want to broaden the tent of the party.
0: One thing I want to add on this particular bill, just the legislative process, um, the overall bill is what people were voting for or against. And I know Doug Collins said specifically it was because of this measure. Um, I don't know that the others did. So because it has this pay raise, it has a whole bunch of other military priorities that people work individually for. Um, I don't know that support for the, again, that voting for against the NDAA is specifically about this measure. I think you'd have to ask every Republican. I think it's clear that President Trump's objection is only because of this measure. So I think it's important to delineate between the members of every member of the Georgia delegation and um, what President Trump has said specifically.
1: Thank you. I'm really glad you uh, put that in there, and we will be careful now to look to see how many of those Republicans who voted against the bill uh, came out and said it was because of the Confederate names on the basis. Let's do this. We're really late for a break, and Sam Bermas-Dawes, who's uh, producing the show while Tom Faust is on vacation, is yelling at me, take a break already. So here it comes. This is Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Sam Oldens, um, Patricia Murphy and Michael Thurman with us today. Uh, Kevin Riley, uh, Georgians and rest of the country really because it's become a national issue have been watching as Governor Kemp and Keisha Lance Bottoms do battle over the governor's uh, telling uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms that she acted uh, illegally essentially in ordering masks to be worn in the city when his executive Order says it really should be. You can't mandate it. They were in court over this, but last night, Keisha Lance Bottoms was on the Tonight Show and she gave us this news. What
4: is going on with that? I'm sorry. Are you being sued by the governor?
0: I am personally being sued by the governor. Uh, but ironically, uh, just before joining you, I, I had a, a very good conversation with the governor. So we've discussed where we disagree, and, and hopefully we can um, figure out a way to agree to disagree without having to play this out in court. But at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want people to be safe. We want to stop the spread of COVID-19, and it certainly doesn't help when when we're having to fight one another.
1: Kevin? Well,
2: Let me start by saying this has been fun uh, from the perspective of a newspaper editor, because uh, with these two fighting with each other so publicly and so viciously for so long, it's been uh, it's offered plenty of news. And and it's clear that at some point both were sort of playing to a constituency that they feel like they have to uh, satisfy. So... um, now, the, the big uh, back and forth in the lawsuit, I guess uh, maybe maybe no one wants to spend all that money and time on it, but uh, in the end, it's just, the whole thing just seems sort of silly, and I'm sure all of you are hearing from friends uh, elsewhere outside Georgia who have the same question of, what the heck are you people doing down there? Why can't you just agree?
1: Sam Olens, you're, you're uh, uh, again, former AG and, and an attorney. The one aspect, of, I mean, the whole thing feels uh, just so avoidable. It just doesn't seem like something that we really need to be focusing on right now. Let's just keep people safe however we do it. But there's one part of this that I hope you can help us understand. Mayor Bottom says that in that 114-page lawsuit filed by your successor, Chris Carr, the attorney general, uh, there includes a provision that demands that she stop talking about anything related to uh, trying to have a mandatory mask order in place in Atlanta. And that just seemed to many people like a bridge too far. Uh, Sam, as former Attorney General, what's your take on that? So that, that's a difficult
4: uh, burden uh, for the state. Uh, it's it's also a difficult Uh, burden to show um, irreparable injury, it's also difficult to show irreparable injury, but uh, putting the shoe on the other foot, it's also difficult from a home rule or local government constitutional issue to say that cities and counties can't control their own facilities, their own property, So I I think there's a basis for an an appropriate settlement that does both what the governor and mayors and county officials want around the state, which, of course, is the safety of of our citizens. So I think there are weaknesses on on both sides. I do tend to think Title 38 is a very strong provision for the state of Georgia, but, but clearly it's time for cooler heads to prevail in the resolution.
1: Meanwhile, Michael, as CEO of DeKalb County, you've been able to finesse this, you think, a little bit in the way that you've looked at requiring masks in the county. Tell us about that.
3: I, I didn't hear the last part of your question.
1: You have been able to basically, as CEO of the DeKalb County, to finesse the language by which you want to put mask requirements in place. Tell us about that. Well, yes and no. But let me tell you the motivation
3: and not to get in the lawsuit. One of the things that was clear to me, that if we are going to fight this virus successfully, in order to do it, of course, requiring a mask is a critical component of that, or wearing face covering. But think about it. It's a health crisis. Counties and cities do not have authority over local boards of health. So consequently, it's a state agency. Another part of the crisis that's not been reported. We've looked at the physical aspect of it, but there are reports that suggest between 60 and 70 percent of Americans are going through some type of emotional or psychological crisis or trauma as a result of this disease. The community service boards provide mental health services. Those are state agencies. People who are out of work, May need more help in food stamps, state agencies, unemployment insurance, state agencies. If we are to be successful, there must be coordination between local and state government in order for us to mitigate and stop the spread of the disease. It's not just about mass, so we have now a mass on us, but we also know that in order for me and the CAP government to save lives. We have to have the support of these state-run agencies. Without that, we cannot in any way be successful. So what Sam Olin and Kevin were saying is so true that if we just focus on that one aspect, to mask up or not, then we miss the broader, broader response that must be put in place. And local governments can't respond without these state agencies being coordinated, having the lines of communication. And we've gone so far as even to supplement the budget of our local board of health, as well as our mental health agencies. And we've contributed money to DFAT so that our citizens can be served. Uh,
0: Bill, one thing I'll add is that in addition to the nuts and bolts of the problems created by the governor and Mayor not being on the same page, To me, it is just wildly irresponsible for them not to have at least a functional relationship, um, let alone a good working relationship. And ideally, speaking in one voice, um, during a time that is a state public health emergency, and I think we all know it's a national and global health emergency, um, for people's faith and government to... Remain strong to remain strong to get strong, I guess, or to return to being strong. Um, You've just got to have leaders who look like they are putting people's best interests ahead of politics. And I think both of these leaders are, um, yes, doing what they think is right, but then also accusing the other of playing politics. Um, When Governor Kemp released his statement about the lawsuit, he just ripped the state, the city apart for. Um, the violence in the city for letting there be lawlessness, he's gonna take over, he's gonna keep the people of the capital city safe and healthy. Um, this is a broken relationship, and the people of the state need it fixed.
3: Uh, and be uh, the... go can, I go want ahead. to say one more thing. See, and, and the challenge here is that there is no COVID-19 playbook for local elected or state elected officials. This is all new. And I think what Kevin said, uh, uh, well, what uh, Sam said is that everybody needs to take a step back, take a deep breath, and really think about the broader perspective. 198 Cap County residents have died because of COVID-19. This is life and death. This is really not about politics. This is about keeping as many people as possible health, healthy and, more importantly, helping them stay alive.
1: Uh, Kevin, meanwhile, uh, the number of cases reported by the Department of Public Health each day are climbing. I think there were well over 3,000 cases reported, new cases reported yesterday, uh, hospital f- spaces are uh, filling up. And so this notion that we're hearing from everybody on the panel that our leader, we've got to be able to put our trust in leaders. There are already, we already know that across the country, every poll suggests that, a very small minority of Americans trust the president of the United States uh, and what he has to say about coronavirus. Uh, and, and here in Georgia, the crisis seems to continue, and people are continue to be, I think, confused about uh, uh, who's taking charge. Well, I mean, what seems clear to me is, uh, I think we can say this, right? I mean,
2: right now it's as bad as it's ever been in Georgia, And the only thing that's changed is we seem somehow less interested in getting it under control or less committed to getting it under control. But when we were early on in the pandemic and even on this show, Bill, when we would talk about numbers and we would talk about deaths and hospitalizations and cases and problems with testing. We have all of that all over again. I mean, it's 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 as bad now uh, as we feared it would be. And what we have is crucial leaders uh, threatening to fight with each other in court instead of, you know, gaining the public's trust and making concrete moves that would improve things.
1: All right. I got to get to a final break of the show. And when we do uh, get back from that, we have a few more topics that will uh, tie up on Political Rewind. <laughs> Patricia Murphy, you spent a long time on Capitol Hill working in uh, offices of uh, two uh, uh, Georgia senators, uh, uh, Max Cleland, and before that, Sam Dunn. You worked for another member of the Congress, too, and I never f- remember who the other one was. Who was it? It
0: was Senator Richard Bryan from Nevada, senior senator, two term governor, little known but much
1: loved on the <laughs> East Coast. Okay, thank you. So uh, the reason I and and you and you report from Capitol Hill all the time. So I'll start with you on this. Uh, What do you let's you know, we don't have time to get into this in great depth, but we have a brand we have yet another poll that just was published yesterday. Reuters Ipsos, which also adds to the body of polling, which shows that Joe Biden, first of all, has a lead over President Trump. Uh, nationally about eight points or more Uh, but the the more more important uh, part of that poll is one of the crosstabs which says that among voters who call themselves undecided uh, Biden leads Trump in terms of leaners by 22% and that also includes independents who claim no party affiliation if you add that to all the other polling we're seeing lately how significant do you think this lead is, and how much room does President Trump have to recover from this and win this election?
0: Well, so um, any single poll, I think we know, it always has the potential to be an outlier. But if you look at the breadth of the polling, and I'll tell you, if I was working on Capitol Hill um, for a Republican, what I would be most alarmed about, um, more than 100 generic uh, ballot polls have been conducted since December. Um, that means if you're just walking out the door, would you pick a Democrat or Republican on the ballot? Um, Democrats have been winning that generic poll and every single one in more than 100 since December. The gap in that has gone from about two to three points plus D to seven, eight, and 14 points plus D. That means that the Republicans have a huge. Problem And for President Trump specifically, he has not been ahead in a national poll since before May. His closest was May 1st, and he tied with Biden. I mean, this is going in the total wrong direction for Republicans. Um, you know, anything can happen. If it happens today, Republicans, I think, have a lot to be worried about. They still have time, I think. They cannot control the president, but they can control their reaction to the president.
1: Sam Owens, you are a longtime resident of a county and a congressional district that's been in play for a long time. What which you, A lot of this is speculative, but how, what do you think is going on in terms of uh, President Trump in Cobb County? And then how will that impact that race uh, between Karen Handel and Lucy uh, McBath? So at
4: the moment, I would not be optimistic, but I would caution that there is a, a huge amount of time Uh, between July and November for the national election, and a lot can happen. You know, in in many ways, uh, Biden is doing fine by avoiding the press. Uh, He can't do that through November 3. Sooner or later, he has to answer questions. Uh, And uh, at at this point, um, the candidate for the Democrat Party is avoiding the press and thereby avoiding the gap. It only takes a couple of them to make a difference.
1: Mike
3: Thurman? I, I just think that this election, federal, state, and local, is a referendum on President Donald Trump and the way he is handling the coronavirus crisis. That's what is prime and foremost on the minds of voters in America, It is this pandemic that is presenting an existential threat, not just to our health and safety, but to the future of this nation. And at the end of the day, if President Trump can't turn it around as it relates to the response to the virus, then I see no path to victory uh, for him. And I see the Senate flipping to Democrats as well and the House picking up additional seats. It's all about the coronavirus and how well we respond. It's what Kevin Riley just said. The citizens don't really care much about politics right now. People are trying to keep themselves and their families alive. They couldn't care less about the politics of 2020 right now. It's about life and death.
2: And at every turn, uh, the coronavirus emerges as an issue. I mean, right now, as we all know, the big question is schools. Uh, the, the president and his education secretary said schools need to open, kids need to go back to school. And uh, I think a lot of educators busied themselves with with planning and wanting to do that. And then just this week, all of our major school districts in Metro Atlanta has said we, we can't do it. We have to wait. We're not confident. So that is where it affects real people. I, I don't care about the politics. If I'm an average person, I care about the fact that I can't I may feel I either can't safely send my kids to school or that this problem just isn't being solved in the way I think it should be.
1: Uh, that is a really interesting point. it seems to me Patricia that and, and you're in that situation uh, with younger children. Uh, I feel very grateful my kids are up, grown they've gone through it all, but y- y- that parents having to decide what's going to happen with their kids in school, Kevin's right. When it comes down to it, it's not about Confederate memorials or all that. Those are That's interesting. It's important. Mandatory mask. Please wear a mask. It comes down to the basic issues of how is my household going to fare in the weeks and months ahead, right?
0: That's right. And, and these school systems have said it's not about the schools. It's about the coronavirus. And the Surgeon General said the most important thing about returning to school is the background rate of transmission. It really has nothing to do with the Herculean efforts of these schools. And then for parents, it's not only um, how do I get through this day, but how do I keep my child safe? And that is a scary, scary place to be. And there is a level of leadership um, that, that could address that. And I think should be addressing that every single day. And as a parent, you, you just don't hear a lot of that.
1: Patricia Murphy gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Sam Olens, Michael Thurman, Kevin Riley, how terrific to have all of you with us for uh, the show today. And again, Michael, thank you for doing double duty on the show this week. We're always glad when you're here. Uh, we're back with another show tomorrow. Uh, uh, State Representative Darshan Kendricks and Representative uh, Chuck Fstration will be here. One of the things we're going to talk about is Efstration is working on, has a committee meeting again today on the citizen's arrest statute. It'll be interesting to see where they're headed with all of that. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow at 9. please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.